Welcome to First Importance, featuring the preaching and teaching ministries of First Baptist Church, West Memphis. If you have your Bibles, I would like to invite you now to join me in Ephesians chapter 1. We complete Ephesians chapter 1 today in our study together, and I hope that it has been as beneficial to you as the studying has been for me. As you make your way there, uh, I begin to reflect on our passage today, and it's unfortunate that most of what is called church and what passes as Christianity today, that much of what is being held all around the United States today, even in these very hours, are hours that lack power, and hours that are ineffective. Perhaps you sympathize with that pain. Many here today will say that they believe in Jesus Christ, that they have been born again. They would say that they believe the gospel, but yet their gospel that they believe is altogether different and insufficient for what they need. A gospel that is no gospel at all. It has no power to alter the lifestyle you say that you have the gospel it's powerful enough to raise you from the dead and give you eternal life in heaven but that same gospel that you proclaim to be sufficient for that is insufficient to alter your lifestyle at all to alter your finances your personality your relationships such a gospel is an empty gospel with an empty heart with an empty promises, an empty and fiery now as much as an empty and fiery future, much of what people call Christianity is in fact not Christianity at all. And you must feel this lack of authenticity. You must feel this lack of genuineness in the church. The world looks at the church and they see the message that we proclaim of the power of God and they see that not being worked out and the people who proclaim the gospel and they are left in despair and even worse those people who belong to such churches and perhaps even those who are here today who've not really experienced the power of God who do not truly know Jesus leave the service each and every Sunday and they leave more than just discouraged and disheartened They leave hopeless. If what we have studied over the last few weeks means anything at all, then it ought to affect how we live. If we have really been blessed by God the Father in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, if we have been chosen before the foundation of the world, if we have been predestined for adoption, if we have redemption, the forgiveness of our sins, if God has revealed to us the mystery of his will and sealed us with his Holy Spirit, our lives ought to look different. And so Paul continues this line of thought when talking about the blessings of God, his desire, the Holy Spirit pins this letter through him to the church at Ephesus and to the church of First Baptist Church, West Memphis today. It's not sufficient that you know these things in your mind. 
but that you know them in your heart. So read with me the prayer that Paul has for us today. Indeed, the prayer that I have for you and for myself today. Ephesians chapter 1, beginning in verse 15. Hear now the word of the Lord. For this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him, who fills all in all. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that you would use this weak preacher to preach the power of your gospel. In the name of Jesus, I pray it. Amen. I join with Paul today in this prayer for you. I pray that you join with him today in this prayer for everyone in here and yourself and me. Paul, Paul has just discussed all these wonderful blessings, and now he is saying, my desire is that you know Jesus. He says in verse 15, because of these blessings and also because I've heard of your genuine faith and your love for the brothers, he does something very important. Very intensely, Paul begins to pray. His prayer is marked very different from most of our prayer lives, which are asking for material things. Those aren't wrong to pray for. A uh, majority of believers spend more time praying people out of heaven than into heaven. And it's okay to pray for illnesses. God cares about everything that's going on in our lives. But Paul's prayer is focused. His desire is that God would do something great in your heart, that verses 1 through 14 would come alive, and that God would grant to us, his church, a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. He desires that the eyes that are located here in your head would read and see these things, but his desire is that God would open up the eyes of your hearts and that you would know him and so my question to you today is this church do you know Jesus do you really know him are you tired of week to week feeling a lack of power feeling a lack of authenticity and the prayer today that Paul voices that we voice with him is that God would do a great work by the way there's no preaching that I can do that can awaken the hearts of people in this room it is the power of the Holy Spirit to do such 
It is the Holy Spirit who opens eyes. And so I pray even now that God would open the eyes of your hearts. And so he gives us four things that he is praying for in, in that we know Jesus, four things that God would awaken our hearts to, that he would open our hearts to. And the first is found in verse 18. Look with me in verse 18. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you. Let me tell you something, church. We got hope. We got hope, we have it in abundance. We have hope that is real, that is tangible. We have a great hope. A hope in the Bible is not some wishful thinking, but the term hope in the Bible is to, to pin all of your hopes, to pin all of your trust upon one thing. The world has no hope to provide. They have no hope to, to provide. We're approaching an election, and everybody is adamant about one direction or the other. As uh, I kind of join other preachers, I forget a famous preacher, Billy Graham once said, uh, as an American, I'm a pessimist. As a believer, I'm an optimist. And, and so I was talking with a dear friend of mine, and I said, what do you think is going to happen in November? He said, I don't know, but I can pretty much bet this is going to be true. He said, this next year, nothing's going to change, and then the following year, nothing's going to change, and then the year after that, nothing's going to change, and the next year, they're going to say, this is the most important election of your life. But what is sad but true in that is that mankind cannot provide hope. They can't. People are going to let you down. Your friends are going to let you, let you down. Your family is going to let you down. Your coworkers, your boss, the person that you trust most in this world is going to let you down. I'm going to let you down and in all likelihood have let you down multiple occasions just within the last 30 minutes. But Jesus will never let you down. You can put all of your hopes and all of your trust in him. And God calls us to know the hope, not just to be aware of it here, but for it to be awakened here, that you would be aware of the hope, that you would live your life in the light of the hope that, provi that Jesus provides that can only be found in Jesus. In Colossians 1 in verse 27, Paul tells us uh, that, that Christ in us is the hope of glory. No one can provide hope in this world but Jesus. People are looking for hope right now. We can, you can wage a war on poverty all you want, and you're not going to achieve worldwide wealth. And you can get together as many vaccines as you want. And you're never going to prevent death. Everyone in this world, everything in this life will let you down. But Christ in us is the hope of glory. Then why in the world do we as believers so often, and I kind of, you know, showed my cards just a little bit earlier, why are we so pessimistic? And why, do we, why are we so quick to anxiety and worry. Paul says, I pray that this hope might come alive to you by looking at Jesus. That the Holy Spirit would show you as you gaze upon him the hope that is yours. It is infinite hope. It is hope that does not disappoint. 
Hebrews chapter 6 and verses 19 through 20, the author tells us, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf. Hey, your Jesus, my Jesus, our Jesus is hope. And believer, that ought to change the way that you leave here today. It ought to change your outlook on life. You've been taught not to put all your eggs in one basket, but friends, I got to tell you, I got all my eggs in one basket. I got all my money in one account. Everything that you have ought to be put on Jesus because he will not let down. Jesus will tell the people, don't put your riches in the things of this earth that moth and rust can destroy, but set your eyes on him who can give you eternal life, who is real hope. But he says not only in Jesus does he desire that we see with our hearts, and even now, Lord Jesus, I pray that your people would see the hope, that you would awaken them to the hope that is theirs in Christ Jesus. But he says he wants them to know the riches. Know the riches. Let's begin in verse 18 again. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know the hope to which he has called you and what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. You know, we spoke a great deal about this last week. It is true that we have a shared inheritance with him. We just studied all of chapter 1. God has done all these wonderful things in our lives from eternity past to eternity future. God has been working in our lives already. He has sealed us with the Holy Spirit, and there is coming a day when we're going to be in a place where there are no more tears and there's no more sadness, no more sickness, no more death. Hey, there's going to be no more masks. Uh Uh-oh. I saw it this week. I want to be like Saul. I want to be on the road to demask us. Okay? Looking forward to that day where I can see your smiles responsibly. We can see one another's smiles. And, and uh, you know, you're going to start, you know, using Altoids again because we'll be able to snag your breath at that point. But that's not the point here. I'm looking. There's coming a day when we're going to be in heaven and we're going to be in glory. Amen, church? Forever and ever. And we're going to inherit that. But this passage, and really, indeed, all of chapter 1, is talking about the fact that God will inherit us. He is wanting us to know the riches of God's glorious inheritance in the saints. That is, his church. He loves you. He longs for the day that we are united together again. You've heard it said, Jesus died for the world, and that is true. But the Bible goes even more specifically, dives down into this more specifically, and says that Jesus died for his church and ransomed a people for himself. God is longing for this day when he has united us and brought us home to be with him. The only way that I can really think to illustrate that is to tell you a little bit about what's gone on in my life this past week. Yesterday, I gathered with my family at Louise Chapel Cemetery in Joyner, Arkansas, alongside a cotton field to bury and celebrate the life of my grandmother, who we called Mama. Loved my mama. She was 91 years old. and Her husband, my papa, had passed away in 2004. They had been married for 49 years. But they, they lived in Dice, Arkansas, where they raised six children, five girls, 
and one boy. Someone have a moment of silence for that family. Five girls and one boy. They uh, lived in, like I said, in Dice, Arkansas, where my papa was a farmer, and he also had another full-time job. And so when he wasn't working at his full-time job, he came home and he worked in the fields until it got too dark to see. And then he'd get up early in the morning and work the fields until he went to work. They never had much. Kind of a, a, a poor life. And yesterday at the funeral, my aunt got up and read a letter that none of us were aware of. And she filled us in that many years ago for Mother's Day, my aunt had written this letter to her mother, my mama, and it says this, Mama, thanks for all the times you gave up the good chicken pieces for the back or the neck, and you told us you liked those pieces. Now we know better. You once said you wished you'd done something with your life. You raised six children to serve God, love their children and spouses, and work responsibly on their jobs I think you did much with your life. Happy Mother's Day, Debbie. Well, on a Friday, after she passed away, they were going through the cabinets and through the drawers at her house, and they stumbled across this letter with a side note that says, Keep, special. And it says, Open when I am resting in peace. And they read the following letter aloud to the family. A letter written in 1996 to the family who would be mourning the loss of their mother and their mama. And she wrote this, Dear Debbie, in answer to your Mother's Day card, that is the nicest card any mother could get, Dear Debbie, all six of you children are, the very, are very special in your own special way, and we love you equally. As far as me always eating the neck and the back of the chicken, I never knew that you kids noticed until you told me. I would do those things 100 times over because I love you all dearly. And now we have 16 sweet little grandchildren that is more than worth everything we did. The greatest blessing God gave me and that God gave us was you children and the grandchildren and all our in-laws whom we love and are very proud of and blessed to have. We love you all, Mom. Here's a woman in a family that never had much in the, way, in, in the way of physical things, but they had one another. And they were rich in one another. And in the same way, God loves you. He is rich in everything, but God takes great joy in being rich in you, in his church. Oh, so much joy. And there's coming a day that has already been established and as good as done, but there's coming a day when he's bringing you home and us home and his children are home. We are his inheritance. The church is so important. Church is so very important. You are his people. You are his inheritance. By the way, church it's so important. It should be your excuse not to go to things, not other things be your excuse not to come to church. What we do here is vitally important. Jesus places so much value on the church. We should place value on the church. And I think about, I think about this godly woman who her whole life had told her kids that she liked the worst part of the chicken so that they could have the best part. 
same way Jesus did that for us, didn't he? Jesus came and lived a perfect life and died on the cross for us. God wants you to know he is rich in you. He wants you to know the riches of his inheritance. Number three, verses 19 through 20, I want you to know power. He says in verse 19, and to know what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Here God is, want, is wanting us. Paul is, is saying this is God's prayer for us. This is his prayer for God's people that we would know his power. The, God, the power that God works in our salvation is the same power that he worked when he raised Christ Jesus from the dead. And let me tell you, that's some power at work. The scripture says here, immeasurable, it's mighty, it's a great power. You think about this, one sin merits death. And on the shoulders, excuse me, on the strong shoulders of our Savior Jesus was laid upon him every single sin of every man, woman, boy, and girl. And if ever there was a man who was dead, it was Jesus. When they placed him in that grave, no life. One day passed, Jesus was still dead in that grave. Two days passed, his body still lay there. But the third day, the power of God entered that grave and rolled away that stone, and Jesus came walking out. And that same power that rose Jesus, who carried the penalty of death for every single sin that had ever been committed, that same power is at work in you right now if you're born again. So enough with the excuses that you can't love your neighbor, or enough with excuses that you can't forgive. The fact is, you would rather love yourself than him, and you would rather work in your own power than in his. That power is there. I can't ask for forgiveness. I've messed up, but I'm too proud. Hey, that power's there, buddy. The power that rose Jesus from the grave resides in you. He wants you to know the power. And oh, I pray that God's people, I consider every single day that we don't go forth in his power to be a wasted day. Every church service that we have that you don't feel the power of God and you don't feel as if this building's going to bust wide open because of the movement of the Holy Spirit to be a wasted service. I consider every conversation to be had that isn't filled with the power of God to be a wasted conversation. Church, every quiet time you have without the power of God is a wasted quiet time. That power is there. And Paul's desire is that God's people would know that power. And even so, Lord Jesus, would your people know that power. Finally, I, I want you to see in verses 19 through 23, he, he wants you, church, he, he wants you to know the hope that's in Christ Jesus. He wants you to know the riches of his inheritance. He wants you to know his power. But when it comes down to it, you know what he wants you to know? Him. Him. 
a lot of a lot of people who carry the name Christian today, they like that title. Or they like being a member of a certain church. Or they have some prestige and the things of this earth. But a real believer is not marked by the, by the things that he's proud of in this world, but by the Savior he gazes upon. And Paul's desire here, as he prays for this church at Ephesus, having just poured out all this beautiful and wonderful doctrine that should be applied to the life, he's saying, I pray that you know him. He says in verse 19 that he wants you to know what is the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places. Verse 21 far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. What does he want you to know? He wants you to know Jesus, the glorified, the risen, the exalted Jesus. Jesus isn't who you want him to be. You've heard that old song, your own personal Jesus. Well, listen, he wants to be a personal savior. And he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. But you can't personalize Jesus. You can't take certain things from the New Testament and, 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 and certain things the way you feel and then construct a Jesus the way that you like. Here he's saying, I desire that you know the real Jesus who, by the way, is on his throne. This, these few verses pour out praise for Jesus. Is there any rule that's outside of Jesus? No, he's above all rule. Is there any authority above Jesus? No, he's above all authority. What about all power? Yeah, that belongs to him. All dominion, that's his. His name is above every name, now and forevermore. Everything is under his feet, and he has placed himself, Jesus, he has placed himself as head of the church, his body, in whom he fills all in all. His desire is that his people would take delight in him, would gaze upon him, that being a Christian wouldn't be about some things that you mark off your list every week, that you had your quiet time every day, and I hope that you've done so, that you've prayed every day, and I hope that you've done so, that you've tithed like you're supposed to, and I hope that you've done that, but that you are gazing upon Jesus. Are you gazing Upon Jesus, here Paul's prayer is that the eyes of your heart would be open and that for you and for me, Christianity would be about that one singular hope and power, that one singular one who's deserving of all honor and glory and praise, Jesus. Paul would say in Philippians, that I would know him. I mean, really know him. That I'd wake up in the morning thinking about him. And he'd be on my mind during the middle of the day. And at lunchtime, I would be wanting to tell him about my day. 
that throughout the day we'd be in conversation and throughout the day I'd be praising his name and at night time when I lay my head down on the pillow his name is the last one that went through my mind how weak we have become as a church because we've taken our eyes off of Jesus and we placed them on less worthy things We've placed them on political saviors. We've placed them on politics. We've placed them on on different things uh, uh, that, that are physical here in this world. Our eyes need to be set on Jesus. On Jesus, on Jesus alone. If you're here today and you don't know that Jesus, if you've never repented of your sins and called upon him as Lord, I want to encourage you to respond to this service in our next time of response here in a few moments in our invitation. If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, I wish you'd come and talk to me or a counselor so that we can teach you how to know the real Jesus by repenting of your sins and confessing him as Lord. But I know that here in this church, there are a lot of believers who have been born again, who have taken their eyes off Jesus and God's desire is that you would kind of like, you'd be like Peter on that sea. That you'd step out of that boat and you'd get to feel the water under your toes. And you'd feel the wind on your cheek. And you would get to experience. And you'd get to know Jesus. Let's pray together. Thank you for joining us today. If you'd like to know more about following Jesus, to pray with a friend, or to talk to a counselor, please call us here at 1-870-735-5241. We hope that you'll join us again here online or in person at First Baptist Church in West Memphis, where we love God, care for one another, and share the gospel.
Thanks for joining us for this episode of First Importance. You're invited to check out our other sermons on this channel, and if you're in the West Memphis area, to join us for our Sunday worship at 1045 a.m.